Hello, welcome to today's program. This is Pastor Patrick Hines, and I'm very happy to be with you all uh, today. <clears throat> As you can tell by the title here, uh, I'm going to be talking about Israel uh, with this terrible, awful war that's going on there. Um, of course, <clears throat> people who are into eschatology, especially the dominant uh, dispensational church Israel distinction, um, pre-trib rapture, premillennial eschatology that has, that dominates American Christianity. It actually doesn't dominate Christianity anywhere else. It's uh, totally unique uh, to, to America. Um, I wanted to address uh, some of these issues of eschatology uh, because uh, I think that there's a lot of false teaching and there's a lot of misconceptions uh, about eschatology. Uh, before I do that, though, I just want to say um, I've been praying for uh, the people, the civilians. I know Hamas targets civilians, and a lot of people have been killed already over there. And I got a, a video, uh, someone sent me a video of um, the faces of children that they, they believe have been kidnapped. And it, it's absolutely horrifying to think of what's going on. And uh, war, uh, although necessary at times for self-defense, um, is always just an awful, awful thing. I've watched many, many documentaries and I've read a lot of books about World War One and World War II, the American Civil War, the Vietnam War. You know, my father's a Vietnam veteran. I was always interested in that, the wars that were fought against communism, the Korean War, all, all that kind of stuff. And the human misery and suffering that comes to pass because of war uh, is absolutely uh, terrifying to read about. And I will say I'm very, very thankful to God that um, I don't live in a war-torn area. It's not to say that it couldn't be at some point, it might be. Uh, but I'm very, very thankful um, that I've never been in a war. Uh, my father is a Vietnam veteran. Both of my grandfathers um, fought in World War II and uh, both of them got Purple Hearts. Both of them actually got hurt. Um, in uh, One in France and one in Italy. So I'm very thankful for that, very thankful for my um, my brave father, my brave uh, grandfathers who fought uh, for the cause of freedom. But I wanted to address the issues of eschatology and Israel. And um, when I came out of seminary, as I've told many people, I was a little bit frustrated. I, I definitely was no longer premillennial in any way, shape or form, primarily because of the, the massive problem that is caused by the idea that Jesus comes back and raises the dead but then establishes an earthly kingdom centered in Jerusalem with a rebuilt temple where we go backwards in redemptive history to types and shadows and temple sacrifices and animal sacrifices and everything else are being offered while there's resurrected glorified Christians cohabitating the earth with mortals that are still getting married, having babies and dying. I don't see that anywhere in scripture. I think that the millennium in revelation 20 is a reference to the entire Inter-advental period uh, between the first and second comings of Christ. That is what the majority, the vast, 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 vast majority of theologians and church history have, have believed as well. And that's a whole big discussion. I've actually got a whole bunch of stuff about that, why I think that. But I want to talk specifically about Israel because anytime Israel's in the news, people immediately start thinking about, well, is this the beginning of the end? Is this the beginning of the end? So I would like to, to do what almost no one ever does when this comes up. Uh, and that is, let's go to the Bible. Let's actually look in detail, in depth, at what the scripture says about this kind of stuff. What does the Bible teach about Israel? What does the Bible teach about the Great Tribulation? What does it actually say about this? Is there a 2,000-something year-long gap between the 69th and the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy? 
Uh, well, there's certainly not one anywhere in the passage uh, to be seen. And uh, I have never, ever seen anyone try to prove that there is. Um, plus, the seven, the 70th week is the week where Messiah the Prince is cut off and um, makes reconciliation for iniquity and brings in everlasting righteousness, seals up vision and prophecy. What does that remind you of? That's the cross. That's the cross. That's the death of Jesus on the cross. That's where reconciliation for iniquity happens. That's where everlasting righteousness is brought in. Okay. If you say that that hasn't happened yet, that the 70th week is yet future, um, what exactly do you think that that's talking about? Okay. So we could go into that. But what I want to focus on is the nation of Israel in Bible prophecy and in Holy Scripture. Now, I put together. <laughs> 16 pages of notes, and this may end up being a real long program, which is fine because I've got a meeting at church tonight anyway, so I can be, that meeting doesn't start till 7, uh, so I could be here uh, for a long, long, long time. Okay, is the rapture going to happen in this century? I don't know. Uh, there's way too much work left to be done, I think, before uh, that to happen. The rapture, however, is not something that precedes a seven-year-long tribulation period followed by a thousand-year millennial kingdom. The rapture, if you even want to use that, that term um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 17 and following, is simply referring to the catching up of Christians to meet the Lord in the air along with everyone that's resurrected um, when Jesus comes at his second coming. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In fact, I went over that today with a couple that's uh, new to the Reformed faith and pointed out when Paul describes the, um, the catching up of the church to meet the Lord in the air, uh, he seems to be completely ignorant of a seven-year tribulation that follows because he doesn't say anything about it in 1 Thessalonians 4 or 5 or 2 Thessalonians or anywhere else in the Bible, anywhere. Okay. Um, he also doesn't seem to be aware of a thousand-year millennial kingdom. There's nothing in the entire Pauline corpus of writings. Everything he says about end times, he knows nothing about a rapture followed by seven years of tribulation and then a thousand-year millennial kingdom. It's just not part of his thinking at all, anywhere. Okay, but I digress. I'm going to desperately try not to look at these comments. Over. Let me just see who's over here first and say hello to everyone. Hello, Susan. Hello, William. Hello. Uh, there's Lily. Hey, Lily. Um, I'm baking. Don't bake. No more cookies. Seriously. You guys got to quit making cookies because they're, they're too good. And I'm, you know, my pants are starting to be feel tight. Steve falling. There's Steve. And there's Adrian. And there's Susan again. And there's Jonas. Okay. And there's Hannah. Hannah from the Netherlands. She, she's been on here before, I think. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Okay. Here we go. Now, if you look at the scriptures, if you look at the gospels, Jesus addresses the issue of God's judgment that was going to come against the nation of Israel for its, its mistreatment of God's prophets through the centuries and ultimately for its rejection of the Lord Jesus. It's a very important theme that comes up again and again in the New Testament, in the Gospels, is that God's going to bring judgment against the Jewish people uh, there in Scripture for their unbelief and for their um, rejection of the Lord Jesus. Okay, now Matthew 21. Now, just back up a little bit here. We're going to walk through the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse is a very important discourse. It's found in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 and Mark 13. Okay, the Olivet Discourse is Jesus's answer to the apostles' question, the disciples' question, um, about when is that going to happen? Because they, they say, Lord, look at all these beautiful buildings. Because from the Mount of Olives, you can see the skyline of, of Jerusalem. 
And they said, Lord, is, look at all these beautiful buildings. And he says, uh, do you see these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And then they simply ask him the question, when's that going to happen? And you know what I think? I know this is kind of radical. I think he answered their question. He answers their question. That's what the Olivet Discourse is about. He tells them when that's going to happen. And he says specifically, this generation... In verse 34 of Matthew 24, verse 34, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. Now, when we get there, we're going to look at a whole host of interpretations of that. I think it means exactly what it says. And it's actually, I think, pretty easy to prove that it means exactly what it says. The generation then living would not entirely pass away before all those things took place. It's probably around the year 30 to 33 AD when Jesus says this. And the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 takes place about approximately 40 years later. So, yeah, this generation, some of it would pass away, but it would not entirely pass away until all these things take place. This generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place, meaning some people here are still going to be alive when this happens. Okay, so he's not talking about something that's 2,000 years in the future. Okay, and we're going to get into this in, in some detail here. But in Matthew 21, there's a bunch of narratives that lead up to the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is building this theme that God's bringing judgment, this great tribulation against the Jewish nation for its many, many, many sins at that particular point. Uh, he says in Matthew 21, 33, here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they said to him, he would destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. <laughs> Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you, from the Jews and given to a nation that will bear the fruits of it. So here you have one parable that's being told about the coming of judgment because the Jewish people as a whole had mistreated all of God's prophets. He sent them this servant and this servant. They beat one, killed another, and did this. Well, he sent him his son. They hated him too, and they wanted to destroy him too. Okay, one other passage, the very famous passage, the, uh, the seven woes uh, in Matthew 23. And keep in mind, Matthew 23 is right before Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. So here you have more pronunciations, the pr pronouncements of, of judgment uh, against the Jewish people. Matthew 23, 1, Jesus spoke to the multitudes and his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. 
But you do not call be, do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. And then he goes into some detail, and he goes into all of the woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. And that's verse fourteen, the back of one. Verse 13, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, verse 15, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to make one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Now, now stay with me here. Listen. Verse 16, woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, which is greater, the gold of the temple that sanctifies the gold. And he goes on from there. Now listen, he just woe after woe after woe after woe. And then he says, listen, verse 34, verse 30, 33. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I sent you prophets. I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. And what, what happens in the book of Acts? The Jewish people, the uh, scribes and Pharisees, the leaders, do that very thing. They scourge people. They scourge Paul. They chase the apostles from city to city. Look at Acts chapter 17. Some of them they kill and crucify. Verse 35, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Now listen, verse 36, y'all with me still? Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So this judgment, this terrible tribulation is in the past. It came upon that generation. You know, in Greek, there is a near demonstrative and there is a far demonstrative. Hutos is the near demonstrative. Hutos means this. Ekenos means that. Now, I could have said that. These things will come upon that generation or a future generation, but he doesn't. He says this generation. Then he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So there's this notion that judgment is coming, and it builds and builds and builds until you get to the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, Luke 21, and Mark 13 in the Synoptic Gospels. And so let's, I want to walk through the this here, but uh, let me uh, just read a couple other comments here from my notes. Um, yeah, this is another, another issue that has, well, I, this needs to be addressed. So there's a massive judgment looming on the horizon for the Jewish people that's spoken of in the Gospels. This generation, the generation that was then living, that brought about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. There was going to be a terrible judgment that would come upon them. And Jesus even says in Matthew 24, 34, after describing it, this generation will by no means take place, or, or this, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Now, one thing to bear in mind here, the phrase, the day of the Lord, and the coming of the Lord, those phrases in Scripture, are phrases used throughout the Old Testament prophets to refer not to the last day of history or to the second coming of Christ, but rather the day of the Lord and the coming of the Lord refer to known temporal judgments that actually took place in history. 
the Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology has an article on the day of the Lord, the day of Christ, the day of God. And it says, quote, it's an expression often in the context of future events, which refers to the time when God will intervene decisively for judgment and or salvation. Variously formulated as day of the Lord, Amos 5.18, and the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.8, the day of God or the last day, the expression highlights the unmistakable appearance of God. God will make visible his rule of righteousness by calling for an account by the nations as well as individuals, dispensing punishment for some and ushering in salvation for others. In the Old Testament, the expression day of the Lord occurs 18 times in prophetic literature, most often in the books of Joel and Zephaniah. A similar expression that stands close to it is the expression on that day, which occurs 208 times in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, equivalent expressions such as day of Jesus Christ are found in 1 Corinthians 1, 8, 2 Corinthians 1, 14, Philippians 1, 6 and 10, 2 Peter 3, 10. Day of the Lord appears in 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 and 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. Okay, end quote. So what does day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord refer to? It's not always the second coming. Very often it's simply to a judgment coming of the Lord that took place in history. I have a list of 22 Old Testament references to the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, and in that day that cannot possibly be referring to the second coming of Christ, but rather refer to temporal judgments against nations that took place in history. The day of the Lord mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 is the day of Israel and Jerusalem's judgment in AD 70. Okay, I just, I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but listen to some of these Old Testament examples. In Isaiah 19, verse 1, listen to Isaiah 19, verse 1, the burden against Egypt. Okay, so Isaiah, the Lord is pronouncing judgment against the nation of Egypt, and this judgment took place in real history, okay? Isaiah 19, 1, the burden against Egypt, behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come into Egypt. The idols of Egypt will totter at his presence, and the heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. That was a temporal judgment against Egypt. That's not a reference to the second coming of Christ. The Lord coming on the clouds does not mean the end of time. I can't emphasize that enough. So often in people reading the Olivet Discourse, well, it says the Lord is coming on the clouds. That has to be the second coming. No, it's not. That's a very common way of, of announcing prophetic judgment. God has done this for centuries. And you know why people don't know this? Because people don't read the Old Testament anymore. Why is this so popular in dispensational circles? Because dispensationalists have no use for the Old Testament. If they did, they would see the use of Old Testament imagery in a prophetic judgment passage like the Olivet Discourse over and over and over and over again. These are not new expressions. Isaiah 13.6. This is a destruction judgment against Babylon. That happened. Isaiah 13, 6. Well, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. The day of the Lord doesn't always refer to the second coming. It referred to a temporal judgment God brought against the nation in history. Isaiah 13, 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger. Well, when did that happen? Well, it happened when God judged the nation of Babylon. That's what Isaiah 13 is about. So the phrase, day of the Lord, doesn't always refer to the second coming of Christ. Ezekiel 13, verse 5. You have not gone up into the gaps to build a wall for the house of Israel to stand in battle on the day of the Lord, 
what is the day of the Lord there? Temporal judgment against Israel's false prophets, which happened. God did do that already. So the day of the Lord happened already? Yeah, many times. The phrase simply refers to a decisive act in history for salvation or judgment. It doesn't always refer to the second coming of Christ. Amos 5 verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is, not, is it not very dark with no brightness in it? What is that talking about? Temporal judgment against the house of Israel. Who did Amos prophesy against primarily? The northern kingdom of Israel. And God brought judgment through the Assyrians against them. So the day of the Lord already happened. The day of the Lord that Amos is talking about already happened. God brought judgment against the northern kingdom through Assyria, and Assyria destroyed the ten northern tribes. Obadiah 1.15, for the day of the Lord, for the day of the Lord upon all nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. What is the day of the Lord here referring to? Temporal judgment against Edom, who mocked Israel's downfall. Now, one of the key principles of biblical interpretation, one of the reasons so few people understand Israel, so people understand the role of Israel today, um, is this. Listen, the New Testament is rooted and anchored in the Old Testament. The New Testament was not written in a theological vacuum. Its background is always Taniatic Judaism. It's always the Old Testament. And Jesus and the apostles quote from it constantly in the New Testament. In fact, the very first verse of the New Testament, in Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Therefore, we got to check the immediate context of passages, like looking at 1 Thessalonians 4.13 and comparing it to chapter 5, verse 1, and seeing, are these talking about the same event or different events? Clearly, they're talking about different events. 1 Thessalonians 4.13-18 is about the second coming. 1 Thessalonians 5 is about the judgment coming of Christ in Jerusalem against the nation of Israel in AD 70 that hadn't happened yet. Now, one thing that's critical here, if you want to understand the role of Israel, if you want to understand eschatology, you want to understand, is there a church Israel distinction? You need to know the meaning of the phrase, this generation in Matthew 24, verse 34. At the end of the Olivet Discourse there, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. Now, those that, that phrase, hutas genea, this generation, Jesus uses the phrase this generation 15 times in the Gospels. In every instance, that near demonstrative pronoun, hutas, this, is used. He never uses the far. He never uses ekenos. It's never that generation. It's always this generation. And in all 15 occurrences, what is Jesus talking about? The generation that was alive to whom he was speaking. This generation will by no means pass away till all of these things take place. Everything that he says in response to his disciples' question about when is every stone going to be thrown down? When is that going to happen? Everything he says is going to happen before that generation would pass away. I have not found a single Bible commentator, scholar, or theologian who does not acknowledge that this generation looks like it means exactly what it says. As I mentioned before, even unbelievers and Bible critics have tried to discredit the Bible on the basis of how clear this phrase is. Sorry, I actually deleted that section of my notes here to make it a little bit shorter. 
Bible critics have have used this for centuries. Hey, Jesus thought his second coming was going to happen before the generation that was then living passed away. No, he didn't. Because he's not talking about a second coming. When Bertrand Russell says Jesus was a false prophet, he said he was going to return before this generation passed away. He's not talking about the second coming. Because the coming of the Lord is not always the second coming. The God, the Lord has come again and again and again in the Old Testament. The coming of the Lord is simply a decisive act of God for judgment or for salvation. And it happens over and over and over and over again. Why do we not know that? Because people don't read the book of Amos anymore. People don't read Malachi. People, what was the last time you read the book of Obadiah? Have you read Isaiah much lately? How about Jeremiah? Amos? You read those prophets very often? We probably need to read them a lot more, don't we? The coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, is not always a reference to the second coming of Christ. Okay, now, <clears throat> a premillennial fellow, George Ladd, who's a good scholar, said this, quote, The Gospels report Jesus as anticipating certain events to happen in the historical future. We have already seen that Jesus anticipated a divine judgment to fall upon Israel because of its spiritual obtuseness. This judgment would be both historical and eschatological. <coughs> Excuse me. Judgment will fall upon Jerusalem and its inhabitants. Temple is to be destroyed and raised to the ground. Judgment will fall upon this evil generation. The kingdom of God will be taken away from Israel and given to another people. Okay. Uh, the Theologians have struggled to understand the meaning of the phrase, this generation. That's George Eldon Ladd. He tries to say, well, it's it's temporal and it's eschatological. Well, I don't I don't think he's right about that. An amillennial guy, Cornelius Benema, after dealing with various attempts to get around the meaning of this generation, such as saying, well, it means this kind of generation, th this evil, blind, unbelieving generation. I question, does it actually say that? No. Um, or this one, the generation that sees these signs. Does, this, does he say the generation that sees these signs? No. So why should we think that then? Or thirdly, seeing the word generation as a reference to the Jewish race. Okay, that's, that's definitely wrong. <clears throat> because the Jewish race is not going to pass away. Okay, um, listen to, to Venema. He's, he's a candid here. He says, quote, The difficulty with this resolution of the problem, however, is that this generation most likely refers to the generation living at the time Jesus first spoke these words. <laughs> he's right. It, it does refer to that. At least three reasons commend this reading. First, though it may be true that the language of evil or adulterous generation is used in other passages, this language is not used in Matthew 24 or Mark 13. Second, if the reference were to a kind of generation of people who live throughout history, then the term to be used would have been genos, meaning kind or race, rather than genea, which means generation. And third, in most of the instances of the expression this generation in the New Testament, the reference is clearly to the then existing generation. For these reasons, it does not seem possible to escape the clear implication that Jesus was speaking of all these things, including his coming, and that he believed they would occur during the life of the generation to whom he was speaking, end quote. I like it when theologians do that, when they, they just force themselves to read the passage and believe what it says. Okay, I believe, um, okay, let me go on here. I'm only, uh, this is going to take too long. I, I want to like to get through this. Okay. Um, okay, I, I, did, I did bring, I did include this. Okay, it's just out of order. The critics and these passages. For a long time, critics of the Bible and unbelievers have used these passages about this generation 
in an effort to show that Jesus himself was wrong regarding his own second coming. <clears throat> and many Christians and Bible commentators, in fact, every single one I've read, recognizes what these passages seem to say, but they will often try to find a way to get around it, just to make sure you're, you're tracking with me here. Jesus, at the end of the Olivet Discourse, says in verse 34 of Matthew 24, Truly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. You know, listen, Bertrand Russell, in his book, Why I Am Not a Christian, cites Matthew 24, 34 as proof that Jesus was a false prophet because he assumes Jesus is talking about the second coming. Many Christians throughout the centuries have made similar mistakes in interpreting Bible prophecy, and the results have been catastrophic for the credibility of Christianity. When the Bolshevik Revolution happened and the atheistic philosophy of communism began to subjugate huge sections of the world, many Christians began to speculate communism would give rise to the Antichrist. When there are tsunamis, droughts, famines, earthquakes, people look at Matthew 24-7 and say, eh, it's almost here. Jesus said that there would be tsunamis and you know droughts, famines, and earthquakes, blah, blah, blah. Tsunamis and huge natural disasters um, in every century have caused Christian writers, pastors, and theologians to say, we're in the last days. We're in the last days. An earthquake happens. We're in the last days. Hurricane Katrina. We're in the last days. The tsunami in Southeast Asia in 2004. We're in the last days. What do all those uh, interpretations of natural disasters have in common? They're all wrong. Okay, because earthquakes, famines, and droughts, and things like that have happened in every century since the time of the apostles. So what is Jesus talking about then? We're going to get into that. When Benito Mussolini rose to power in Italy, followed shortly thereafter by Adolf Hitler in Germany, Christians published books that were absolutely certain. Mussolini's the beast, Hitler's the false prophet in the book of Revelation. In my own lifetime, I used to hear very confident preaching and teaching that Gog and Magog from Ezekiel 28 and Revelation 20 were Russia. And that we would soon see the Russian invasion of Israel. There was a book that came out in 1988 by Edgar Wisenant called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. And he wrote this because Israel became a nation in 1948 and a generation is 30 years, so do the math. The next year, 1989, he wrote another book called The Final Shout, Rapture Report 1989. He went back and redid the math and realized he was off by a year. Um, it's this kind of mishandling of Bible prophecy that leads to the mockery of Christianity that's so prevalent in our world. You know, I found Edgar Wisenant's book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988, on Amazon.com. And one of the reviews says this, quote, this book really stands the test of time. <laughs> Looking back, the world clearly ended on September 11th, 1988, and everything since then has been an illusion. I highly recommend this book for anyone who loves irony. What more irony? Mr. Wisenant died in May of 2001, just a few months before 9-11. A golden opportunity to froth about end times again. He was so close. All we can do now is wait for the Mayan apocalypse of 2012. Thankfully, that wasn't real either. Make sure you, to buy my upcoming Times dissertation. 12 reasons why you're going to hell unless you buy my book. <laughs> I love that's That's one of my favorite Amazon reviews. But is it any wonder people laugh at us when we tell them? Christ is coming back, repent. When that's the kind of stuff that, that we have a track record, we, we need some serious biblical reformation in our eschatology. Okay, because no one has given the, the unbelieving world more reasons to mock us than the dispensational pre-trib rapture premillennial guys. Okay, I'm sorry, that's just a fact. And facts are stubborn things. 
We owe the Lord a more diligent attitude towards studying Bible prophecy and end times. And we need to turn to the biblical text again. When all else fails, slowly, carefully read the text of your Bible. Okay. All right. Real quick before I dig in here. Um, uh, okay. Just want to see if there's anyone else over here. Um, 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 um. All right, good. So no, there's not. There's not a nuclear like thing going on over here. The, the The comment section is not turned nuclear. That's good. All right, so let's look at the Olivet Discourse. Very important passage of scripture. I think it's one of the most misunderstood passages of scripture because of the rise of dispensationalism in the 19th century. And I want to encourage people to listen to. I did a sermon on the history and theology of dispensationalism, and a lot of people have contacted me and told me that was very. Um, that was very useful uh, to them. Uh, real quick, Pastor, what's your best recommendation for a resource that describes Jerusalem's destruction? But one that just describes it, read volume one of Philip Schaff's History of the Christian Church. Just the section on the Jewish war it is absolutely mind-blowing to read. Uh, yes, wh whoever William Clement is in Eschatology of Victory by J. Marcellus Kick is an excellent book. Uh, I, I haven't finished it, but, but I did start reading it, and it's outstanding. So yes, thank you, whoever whoever you are, oh, William Clement. Okay. All right. Let's, uh, I'm going to try not to get distracted by this. Order. Um, <clears throat> okay. Listen to the all that discourse. Let's look at it. If you have a Bible, if you're not, you know, driving or something, let's walk through the text of the all that discourse here. Okay. Now I'm going to go ahead and, um, and just start at the very beginning. I'm reading from the new King James version here. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. So after he told, pronounced all those woes and told them all this is going to come upon this generation, again, a reference to what's coming in AD 70, Jesus went out, Matthew 24, verse 1, from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, tell us. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Okay, so let's let's dig into this now. And remember, what he's what he says here in response, verses 4 through 33. He says in verse 34, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. So what he's describing is what's going to happen in their lifetime before their generation was dead. Okay, verse four, and Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. Now, in Philip Schaff's History of the Christian Church, volume one, page 304, I found this quote, quote, besides this, the party spirit among the Jews themselves and their hatred of their heathen oppressors rose to the most insolent political and religious fanaticism and was continually inflamed by false prophets and messiahs one of whom, for example, according to Josephus, drew after him 30,000 men. Okay, now, because of the, the oppression of Rome, as that, that ramps up uh, right before the destruction of Jerusalem, there was a, a, an explosion of false Christs and false Messiah. I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah. Okay, it's not that no one's ever said that since then, in every century since then, but there was going to be a very high concentration of it as nationalism among the Jews rose because of Roman oppression. More and more people were, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah. And Josephus even records that one, one particular guy drew 30,000 men after him. You know, Josephus was a, a Jew, 
who was also, I believe, was a Roman citizen. And he was actually an eyewitness of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and records it in, in excruciating detail in his book, The Jewish War. Okay, so Jesus is telling his disciples, don't let anyone deceive you. A zillion false messiahs are coming. And they're going to deceive many, it says in verse 5. So he goes on, verse 6. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now, when he says the end, and when the disciples ask about the end of the age, they're talking about the end of the old covenant age. When he talks about the end, he's talking about the end of the old covenant age, not the end of the world, not the end of the whole universe or anything like that. So what about wars and rumors of wars? People are like, well, there's a there's a war going on, so isn't that a war and a rumor of a war? But Jesus says here, see that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Okay, now listen. The pagan Roman historian Tacitus writes of this period of time that Jesus is saying this in, quote, I proceed to a work rich in disasters, full of atrocious battles, and discord and rebellion, yea, horrible even in peace. Four princes, Galba, Otho, Vitellius, Domitian, killed by the sword. Three civil wars, several foreign wars, and mostly raging all at the same time. Favorable events in the east, the subjugation of the Jews. Unfortunate ones in the west. Illyria, disturbed. Gaul, uneasy. Britain, conquered and soon relinquished. The nations of Sarmatia and Suavia. Rising against us, the Parthians excited by the deception of a pseudo-Nero. Italy also weighed down by due or often repeated calamities. Cities swallowed up or buried in ruins. Rome laid waste by conflagrations. The old temples burned up. Even the capital set on fire by citizens. Sanctuaries desecrated. Adultery rampant in high places. The sea filled with exiles. The rocky mountains, rocky islands contaminated with murder. Still more horrible, the fury in the city, nobility, riches, places of honor, whether declined or occupied, counted as crimes and virtue, sure of destruction, end quote. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, gives a very similar account of this period. There was an unbelievable concentration of wars and rumors of wars and civil unrest during this time period. It's really unequaled after it. Okay, so that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about couple thousand years from now, you'll hear about wars and rumors of war. He's talking about something that's going to happen in their lifetime. And the historians at the time point out, this is, this is just full of disaster. It's like the whole world's coming apart. Earthquakes and wars and famines. And you know what you see in, in the book of Acts? Earthquakes, famines. Okay, that, that's, that was characteristic of the time period between the resurrection of Jesus and AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem. So that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about wars and rumors of wars a couple thousand years from now, from then. He's talking about something in their lifetime. He's telling, and, and notice, just follow the pronouns. Verse six, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. Who's he talking to? His disciples. You will hear. See that you are not troubled. He's not talking about people that are going to be born in 2,000 years. He's answering their questions. When's this going to happen? When's the destruction of Jerusalem going to happen? He's going to, he's telling him, you're going to see this. You're going to see lots of false messiahs are coming. You're, you are going to hear about wars and rumors of wars. Verse 7b, there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Listen, famines, Acts 11, 27. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, verse 28 of Acts 11. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world. 
What did Jesus say was going to happen before this generation passed away? Famines. What do you see in the time period between Jesus' resurrection and AD 70? Famine. A great famine throughout the whole world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar? Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. Even, I mean, th this famine affected the church. And they, they were sending aid to one another because there was, there was nothing to eat. The famine was devastating. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about famines, you know, in Australia or something. He's talking about famines that, that, that they would know about that would happen in their area there. Okay? Earthquakes. Jesus said there's going to be earthquakes. In the writings of the first century historian Tacitus, we read a description of the conditions in the year A.D. 51 in Rome. Quote, this year witnessed many prodigy, uh, uh, prodigies, signs, or omens, including repeated earthquakes. Josephus accounts that an earthquake in Judea was such a magnitude that, quote, the constitution of the universe was confounded for the destruction of men, end quote. He also wrote, that earthquakes were, quote, a common calamity and indicated that God himself had brought them about for a special purpose. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Jesus is saying, guys, you, my audience, the people, not people 2,000 years later, but you all are going to hear about famines. Acts 11, famine in the whole world. You're going to hear about earthquakes. What was going on between the time of the resurrection of Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem? Earthquakes. They were, quote, a common calamity and there was one that was so horrible it was like the whole universe was shaking then there is in the book of acts that, that records quote a great earthquake that shook the foundations of the prison house Acts 16 26 there were earthquakes in crete smyrna miletus kios samos laodicea hierapolis Colossae, campania rome and judea that are recorded for us historically jesus says in verse 8 and 9 still remember he's still answering the question they want to know when, when are all those stones going to be thrown down? Everything's going to be destroyed. Verse 8, all these things are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. Now, again, listen, follow the pronouns. Who's he talking to? They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. Acts 4, verse 3, and they laid hands on them. Who's them? The disciples. And put them in custody until the next day. Acts 5, 40, and they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. But what was going to happen? They're going to deliver you up to tribulation. So they beat them. Acts 7, 58, and they cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him. They'll, they'll kill you. They'll kill disciples. Acts 8, verse 1, Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered through all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. What did Jesus say? They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. What do you see in the book of Acts? Them being delivered up to tribulation and killed, and being hated by all nations for his sake. Acts 9, verse 1. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Isn't that amazing? A guy that was once doing that then goes on to become the victim of it himself after he's converted and saved. Acts 12, verse 2. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. What did Jesus say in verse 9 of Matthew 24? They would deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. Acts 12, 2. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Acts 14, 19. Then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. And having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. 
You're going to be hated by the nations for my name's sake. What do you see in the book of Acts? What do you see in the time period between the resurrection of Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70? They were hated, they were delivered to tribulation, and they were killed. So far, there's nothing we've read that would dispute the meaning of Matthew 24, 34. This generation will not pass away till all these things take place. Listen, verses 10, 11, 12, and 13 of his answer. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. In verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. I remember thinking, that's got to be about the end of the world. Like the end of the entire world. This can't be about the coming of Jesus in AD 70. Because the gospel hasn't been preached in the whole world, has it? Worldwide evangelism? Okay, remember folks, you want to compare scripture with scripture. What is the Greek word that's used here for world? It is the word oikumene. Not the word cosmos. The word oikumene. If you look up oikumene in a Greek lexicon, you look it up in Bauer, Donker, Art, and Gingrich, or any of the other ones, it will say the inhabited earth or the Roman Empire. What is it referring to? The gospel will be preached in the inhabited earth or the Roman Empire. That's what that means. Not every single place in the entire planet. So did that happen before AD 70? Yeah, it did. Listen to some other ways that the word oikumene, inhabited earth or Roman Empire, is used. Luke 2 verse 1, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Well, does that mean that they registered the Aborigines in Australia? Does that mean that they went to North America and counted all the Indians? <laughs> does it mean that they counted the Eskimos in northern Canada? No. What does Oikumene refer to? The Roman Empire. The inhabited Earth. The way the term is being used is referred is referring to the Roman Empire. Listen. Romans 16, 25, and 26 you're going to see, in that sense, the whole world had been evangelized and had heard the gospel before AD 70. The inhabited earth of the Roman Empire had. Now, there was obviously much more Great Commission work to be done yet, as the gospel still needed to go to the New Hebrides Islands, to Australia, to the far-flung regions of China and the Asian, you know, Asia over there and North America, South America. But the inhabited earth of the Roman Empire had heard the gospel. Listen, Romans 16, 25. Now to him who was able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now has been manifest, been made manifest by the prophetic scriptures and by the prophetic scriptures has been made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. When Paul wrote Romans, the gospel has been made known to all the nations. It had already happened. Paul speaks about the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ as something that has now been made known to all nations. Thus, it happened before AD 70. Colossians 1 says the same thing in, in verse 5b through 6. The word of the truth of the gospel which has come to you as it has also in all the world. And is bringing forth fruit. It, it had already been preached in all the world in that sense throughout the inhabited earth of the Roman Empire. How can Paul say the gospel has been preached in all the world when it had not yet come to North America, South America, Australia, Russia, because of the historical context? Colossians 1.23, if indeed you continue in the faith, 
grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven. Again, here it simply means the gospel which spread out from Judea to the ends of the, in the uttermost parts of the earth. And indeed, when Paul wrote Colossians, it had already done so. It had gone to the Oikumene, the inhabited earth of the Roman Empire. Okay, um, there's a few more references there, but let's go ahead and, and press on. Uh, Matthew 24, 15. Therefore, when you see, I'm going to follow, follow the pronouns. Who's he talking to still here? Is he talking to people that will be born 2,000 years later? He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. And then verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, many people will agree that up to verse 14, yes, indeed, that's all referring to what would take place prior to Jesus's judgment coming in AD 70. But they'll argue that in verse 15, we jump into the future. But I just want to point out, look at the first three words of verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, who's he talking to? The disciples. What did they ask him? When is that going to happen? He said, all the stones, you see, there's not one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. They said, when is that going to happen? And he's answering their question. You, 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 you. Here again. When you see the abomination of desolation. Who's going to see the abomination of desolation? The people he's talking to. His disciples. Spoken of by Daniel the prophet. When that happens, when you see that, leave Judea, go to the mountains. Question about verse 15. What in the context would lead us to believe that Jesus, by the very same word you, the word you, is speaking of an entirely different audience that would exist at least 2,000 years in the future? I'd like to suggest to you, if that is actually what he's doing here, he's really being disingenuous to them. Because they would have no reason to think that. That he's suddenly talking about people that haven't even been born and wouldn't be born for another 2,000 years. All I'm asking is what in the passage would make someone think that? I'd like to suggest nothing. Absolutely nothing. <clears throat> Let me see who's over here. Okay. All righty. Okay, listen. Okay, let's go. Let's cross on here. Um, now, some say that the abomination of desolation is the Roman army itself. Some say it was the corrupted priesthood that continued to offer sacrifices there um, in the temple. Others say it was the posting of the Roman eagle standards in the temple precincts. Uh, to those looking for something worldwide uh, in, in this here, notice the following verses. Verse 16. When you see the abomination of desolation, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. If this is a worldwide tribulation, listen, please. If this is a worldwide tribulation, how can you escape it by fleeing to the mountains of Judea? Why Judea? Why not everyone in the world fleeing to mountains? Answer, 
because these are descriptions of things taking place in Judea and nowhere else in the world. This is a judgment against Jerusalem and the surrounding area of Judea. And to escape it, all you needed to do was flee Judea to the mountains. It's not a worldwide tribulation, folks. It's already happened. AD 70. And he told them, when you guys see Roman armies coming, Luke 21 specifically says that, Luke 21 verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation is near. You see them coming, leave. Go to go to the mountains. You who are in Judea, get out of town or you're going to get killed. Have you ever wondered, why was everybody selling all their stuff in the book of Acts early on there? The Christians were selling all their possessions and liquidating everything because they knew that this was going to happen before that generation passed away. They knew that their generation was, was not going to be able to stay there. That when Rome's armies approached, they needed to be ready to get out of there quickly. It's not because they were communists or socialists or anything like that. They were selling their stuff because they knew they needed to be able to get out of town quickly. Because Jesus had graciously told them, you don't want to be here for this. You're going to get killed. He's giving them a warning. Get out or you're going to get killed. Josephus records that over a million Jews were killed in the Jewish war. The 42-month-long siege of Jerusalem. And what about verse 21? For then there will be great tribulations such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. Keep in mind the historical context. For the Jewish people and nation, this was indeed the greatest disaster that had ever and would ever happen to them. Okay, And also there in the book of, of Ezekiel, uh, there's a prophetic description of, of temporal judgment using the exact same phrase. Uh, I can't recall. I think it's in Ezekiel 5 somewhere where it says that it will be such a tribulation such as has never been from the beginning of the world until this time known or ever shall be. Okay, <clears throat> verse 22, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. No flesh simply means all those in the area where this great tribulation takes place. It is not worldwide, okay? And then verse 23 to 28, <clears throat> then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Verse 27, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. This describes the kind of coming that we're talking about. It is a coming of judgment. Okay, so not every reference to the coming of the Lord Jesus is the second coming. Revelation 2, 4, and 5 is an example of this. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Come to you meaning what? I will come in judgment against you. Not the second coming, just coming in judgment. Isaiah 19, verse 1. The burden against Egypt, behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come into Egypt. That's not the second coming. It's just the coming of judgment. Micah chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. Is, is that the second coming of Christ? No, it's a judgment coming in history. Okay. Um, Matthew 24, 28 to 33, wherever the carcass is, uh, verse 28, there the eagles will be gathered together. 
this is speaking of the fact that there's going to be bodies everywhere in the streets and eagles or vultures will eat them. Uh, some even think that the term eagle may be a reference to the Roman eagle standards that their legions carried, okay, where the eagles are gathered together. Whatever, whatever your particular interpretation, this is simply talking about the carnage that's coming in this Jewish war against Rome. Verse 25, 29, key passage. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. <clears throat> Notice the timing indicator here. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Then the words about the sun, the moon, and the stars. How can, how can we think that that took place in AD 70? Really? The sun, the moon, the stars were shaken? They fell from heaven? Jesus is actually quoting, alluding to Isaiah 13, a prophecy that applied to Babylon's great judgment and downfall um, and applies it to Israel's great judgment and downfall. The sun, the moon, and the stars. The sun, the moon, and the stars. Throughout history, nations have compared their greatness to the grandest objects in all of creation, the sun, the moon, and the stars. When we consider everything that exists, what could be greater in glory than the sun, the moon, and the stars? Are the largest things that we can see that exist. In fact, look at, think about national flags. The U.S. flag has 50 what on it? Stars. What does Japan's flag have on it? The sun. What, is, what do Muslim countries have on them? The moon, star. Chile, China, Cameroon all have stars on their flags. Nations have always identified themselves with the grandest objects in creation. And when God speaks in his word about the stars falling and <clears throat> the moon not, not, not existing anymore and the, the, the sun being darkened and everything else, he's talking about his judgment and the falling of nations. Isaiah 13, verse 6 and 9 and following. Listen to verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes. This is a judgment against Babylon, both with wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. What's that talking about? Is that the second coming of Christ? No. It's the destruction of a historical nation, the nation of Babylon. So when Jesus says that about Israel, that the stars will fall and the moon will not give its light and the sun will be darkened. What's he talking about? The end of the world? No. The destruction of a nation. That's all he means. Now, as I said, if we read our Old Testaments more often, if we'd read Isaiah 13, we would actually be, yeah, he's, he's describing the destruction he's going to bring against Jerusalem in the same way he described his destruction of Babylon in Isaiah 13. Jesus applies that to Jerusalem. Immediately after the tribulation, verse 29, of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give us light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And the day God judged Babylon, did the stars of heaven and their constellations literally stop giving their light? No. Did the sun literally become dark? No. Did the, did the moon stop shining? No. But what happened? Babylon was destroyed. In 8070, did the sun go dark and the moon not give its light and the stars fall? No. But Israel fell as a nation. Remember how uh, Joseph and his dreams, remember um, mom and dad and his brothers, what were they represented as, as in his dreams? Sun, the moon, 11 stars, the nation of Israel. Remember the questions Jesus was asked? Tell us, when will these things be? The disciples want to know what? Not one stone is going to be left here upon another that will not be thrown down. When is that going to happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Verse 29 says the powers of the heavens will be shaken. That's uh, from Hebrews 12, 25 to 29. Uh, verse 26 says, 
uh, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. The old covenant order, the sun, the moon, the stars, is a kingdom that can be shaken. And it's going to be replaced by the kingdom of God through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, the kingdom which cannot be shaken. Okay, so all those things would take place um, before that generation passed away. Man, we are we just passed the hour mark. And I've got a whole thing here. I've got a lot more stuff I was going to go through about Israel's future. Um, let me let me just um, let me just I'll make one point and then, then we'll be done because I, I don't want you to have to sit here for a whole lot longer. Whoever's still here, there's 64 people still here. That's good. I must not be too boring, I guess. Okay, listen. <clears throat> and I in Romans chapter 11, Paul speaks about the the future of Israel. For my part, I believe, having done a lot of exegetical work in Romans 11, and I preached through the book of Romans years ago and, and read a lot of stuff about this, I believe that at some point, a future generation of Israel, almost all of them, if not all of them, are going to come to know Christ and be saved. And when that happens, that's going to signal that the end is getting close. Because <laughs> when that happens, it's going to be life from the dead. It says, listen to Romans 11:15. For if there, the Jews, being cast away, is the reconciling of the world, the gospel going out to the Gentile nations, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Well, there's a lot more in this passage, but that's kind of the key verse. If they're being discarded in this way, when the Gentiles got to hear the gospel and got to be saved, what's going to happen when the, when the Jewish people are accepted? When a whole generation of them comes to the Lord Jesus, to their own Messiah, what's going to happen then? Life from the dead. That's why I believe that the future um, is going to be glorious in this age. Isaiah chapter 2 teaches that too. I could go do more on, on this, this topic, but I believe that since the Great Tribulation already happened in AD 70, I'm not looking for the rise of some mega horrible world leader that's going to try to destroy the church. But to me, the Great Commission is going to succeed, and we're going to see widespread revival eventually, and we're going to see life from the dead. When Israel is accepted, when a whole generation of Jewish people come to know Jesus, then the fullness of the Gentiles are going to be brought in, and then, then the Lord Jesus is going to come, and that's going to be the end. So Israel has a glorious future. But I do not believe that that nation over there, that secular nation that's pro-abortion and everything else that has nothing to do with, with God, wants nothing to do with God, has any connection to Bible prophecy at all. I don't believe the nation of Israel has any connection to Bible prophecy at all. And Jewish people do not have any promises um, or hope outside of the gospel. They need Christ just like I do. They need Christ just like people from Africa do, people from Australia do, people from China, Korea, Russia, from America, Mexico, South America. They need Christ because they're the descendants of Adam just like we are. And so that's my prayer for Israel. I pray for Israel just like Paul did that they would be saved, that they would come to know Christ, as it says in Romans 10, verse 1. My most earnest prayer to God for Israel is that they would be saved. And I would invite you to pray the same thing. Okay, that's about it. Hopefully that was helpful to you. I know that's a lot. It's kind of like drinking from a fire hose. But um, all I've got actually probably 15 sermons on eschatology out there that represent a lot of work that I've done through the years to try to iron this stuff out. But um, I'm very thankful to God for what Scripture teaches about the future, and uh, it's a blessing to know it, and I, I hope that this has been helpful to you to that end. Thank you for watching or for listening.